I'm going to read together from the scriptures. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23. We're going to read from verse 27. Luke chapter 23, verse 27. And after this reading, we're going to sing two favorite hymns. We'll have one from the ladies and we'll have one from the men. And we'll sing the first and the last verse of those hymns in a moment. But let's hear the scriptures. Luke chapter 23, verse 27. If you can follow with me in your Bible, that will be appreciated. I want you not only to hear the word, but to see the words. Luke 23, verse 27. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For, behold, the days are coming, in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the pops which never give suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with them, to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which was called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, this is the King of the Jews. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 38. And we pray God will stamp his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from our reading. Luke chapter 23 and the verse 33. And it reads, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now that's my text for tonight, Luke 23 and verse 33. And my theme tonight is very simple, and it's this. Behold the place called Calvary. 
Listen to the text again. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now, as you look at this text, as I thought about it, and I believe the Lord has given me a few thoughts to leave with you tonight, I trust and pray that the Holy Spirit will open up this text of Scripture. I've read a number of uh, preachers preaching on this text of Scripture. I, I've listened to a few of our own men um, preaching on this text, and I have to confess I was very disappointed because I said to myself, these individuals, good as they are, they're not dealing with the text of Scripture. Because after I had listened for 10 or 15 minutes or read for half an hour, I was asking myself the question, well, what is the text saying? Well, what's the text about? And that's so important. The late Dr. Paisley used to say, um, announce your text and then tell them your theme. So what you're going to do with it, and that's what I've done. I've given you the text. Luke 23, 33, here's the theme, beholding the place called Calvary. Now, I just want to give you the outline. Here's the first point. Calvary is an historical place. Look at the text. It says, and when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary. See, Calvary tonight, young people, is a real historical place. If you were to visit the land of Israel, and I would urge you, if you can, visit the Holy Land at least one time in your life, and one of the places that you will visit with your guide is the garden tomb. And if you go to the bottom end of the garden tomb, you can look across from the garden, and you'll see a place called Skull Hill. Literally, it's the place of the skull. And you will look at a cliff face and you will see visibly in that cliff face caves that form like two eye sockets. And, and you'll see visibly a, a rock protruding out from the face of the rock like a nose. And if you look below the nose, you, you, you'll, you'll see a, 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 a creviced out place that forms the outline of a mouth. Calvary is known as the place of the skull. And today it's known also as Gordon's Calvary. Let me give you a little historical information. General Charles Gordon, a well-known respected leader of the British army, came to live in Jerusalem in 1882. He often visited the home of a man called Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna and family. They were founders of the American colony in Jerusalem. And their headquarters was on the northern side of Jerusalem. They had an apartment there on top of the northern wall of the old city. And General Gordon had a good view out of his window. And one occasion as he looked out, he could identify a, a rocky escapement reflecting the image of a skull. He could see visible caves that formed eye sockets. He could see a visible nose protruding out of the rock face. He, he could see the outline of a mouth. And he got excited. And he called Horatio Spafford. And he says, look, 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 there is Calvary. 
You see, Calvary, the word Calvary in the Bible, if you look at it, it's there in the text. It's, it's a Latin form of the, the literal meaning, the place of the skull. Another name for Calvary is Golgotha. And Golgotha is in the Hebrew tongue. And it means the same thing. Calvary and Golgotha is one of the same place. One is Latin and the other is Hebrew. And you know what? General Gordon discovered around the corner there was a garden. And in the garden, they discovered a tomb. And they discovered that you could stand at the door of that tomb, at the very opening, and you could see the burying spot of a dead person. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 19. I want you to look with me at verse 41. I want you to see this. Underline this in your Bible. This is important. John 19, verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. For in was never man yet laid. And also, if you keep your finger there in John 19, come down to chapter 20, and look with me at verse 5, and he stooping down, that was John, and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Peter raced in past him and right into the empty tomb. John stood at the door, but yet from the door he could see the spot where a body would lie. You see, that's important. And and Horatio Spafford and General Gordon discovered that in the garden was also a wine press. In the garden was a water supply. Now, who owned this garden? We could ask the question, who owned the tomb? And, of course, I can answer that. Because the Bible tells us it was owned by a rich man. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. Turn over there to Matthew chapter 27. And look with me at verse 57. See, this is not speculation, young people. This is not conjecture. This is not just something that I have dreamed up in the bed. It tells us there in Matthew 27 and the verse 57. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, which also himself was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Now look at verse 20. And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. After General Gordon and Horatio Spafford not only had identified in their minds the place of the skull and also discovered that near to that place, around the corner, was a garden with a garden tomb and these other things that they could identify, ten years after that, the uh, property was purchased. A group of believers together in England They formed what is called today the Garden Tomb Association. 
And um, you can go to the shop there. You could purchase a photo that was taken somewhere in around 1898, 1914, somewhere in that period. And you can look at the view similar to the one that General Gordon saw from the house of Horatio Spafford. And you can see the place. And you can see the skull. And you can see a few Muslim graves at the top of that hill face. And you can see at the bottom camels walking east along a busy thoroughfare because that place was accessible to many passers-by. Today it's now a bus station. A place that's about 500 metres from the Damascus Gate. And you see, I emphasise that because Calvary is an historical place. A real, literal, geographical, historical place. Where was the Lord Jesus crucified? Not just any place. A very significant place. A specific place. A real place. Remember, he was crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Isn't this what the book of Hebrews tells us? In Hebrews chapter 13 and in the verse 12. What does the apostle Paul say to the church there? He tells them. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. See, sometimes we sing, come with me, visit Calvary. And you can. Literally tonight, you could visit that geographical location and you could stand at that place in the garden tomb, and you will see that place of the skull. But you could also spiritually visit that place. And by faith, you can look upon and gaze and behold Christ being crucified there. And you can ponder in your mind who he is. And you can ponder in your mind what he's doing in that tree. Because that's a secret place. I don't know you of a family, but I'm sure that most of you have a favorite place that you love to visit, either in your mind or maybe even literally, maybe it's Port Rush, maybe it's the island of Cyprus, maybe it's Tullymore Forest, maybe it's the mountains of Moore. My favorite place has to be the garden tomb in Jerusalem. You think of the words, the place. It's not what the text says. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary. And if you look at the margin in your Bible, it actually says the place of the skull. Now contrast that with another place, the the traditional site uh, of the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In 325 AD, a lady called Helena of Constantinople, she was the mother of um, uh, Constant the, 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 the Great, 
And she came to Jerusalem and she identified what she believed was the place of Christ's crucifixion, the, the place of his burial, and the place of his resurrection. And a church was built over that spot to, to, to preserve it. Now, now, I have been in that church of the Holy Sepulchre, so was Rosie. And, and I have to tell you, it's a dark, gloomy place. It's a place of incense that's burning. It's a place of stone slabs. It's a place where people are dressed in various uh, garbs. And that's supposed to represent the place of the burial and the place of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But I ask this question to you. Which place is the true Calvary tonight? Is it the place of the skull that could easily be identified? Is it close by a garden? Is there a wine press there? A water supply there? Is it a pleasant, sweet place? Is it the place of a tomb? A new tomb carved out of rock? Has it got a stone for a door? Could you look... Uh, standing at the door of that tomb and see the burying spot? Is it outside the city wall of Jerusalem? Is it, is it near the gate? Because he was suffered without the gate, 500 meters from the Damascus gate. Is it a place where many people have access to? There was multitudes passing by the cross. It was a busy highway. Is it a place known as the place of the execution? You see, Crucifixion was like a social sporting event. It was the sport of the day to go and watch a criminal die, to, to watch the agonies of a dying man. The Bible tells us there in Matthew 27 and verse 37, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Let me tell you who was there. Pharisees were there. Scribes were there. Chief priests were there. Elders were there. Roman soldiers were there. There was a multitude of women there. There was children there. There was harlots there. There was thieves there, educated and uneducated, wicked men of every rank. And the Bible tells us, and sitting down, they watched him there. See, when you think of Calvary tonight, I want you to think of an historical place. A place that you can visit, either literally or by faith. I want to tell you something else. And this is what came to me. And this little message came to me in bed. I'm telling you, I was listening to some of our men. And after 10 minutes, I switched them off and said, Brother, it's not doing me any good. So I went off to bed. And lying in bed, I was thinking of this text of Scripture. And it was as if three wee thoughts had jumped into my mind. And I have a habit of alliterating things, even though Dr. Bertie Cook reviled against it. He wasn't really in favor of it. I suppose he wasn't really against it either. But he certainly just didn't feel it was always necessary. But I like alliteration. It's good for me. And I trust it's good for you. Not only is it an historical place, but I want to tell you this. It was a horrible place. Look at our text. Look what it says in verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, historical, there they crucified him. Now do you see that? There they crucified him. Let's just pause there. See, as I've said, Calvary was the place of execution. Do you know that this was the place reserved for the worst of criminals and lawbreakers? Anybody that was seditious or treasonous against the uh, uh, might of imperial Rome, the murderers and the thieves? 
It's approximated by historians that over 30,000 were crucified by the Roman soldiers during their time in Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus was one of them. And what makes his crucifixion different from any other crucifixion? Well, look at the text. There they crucified him. Underline the word him. To me, it should be in capital letters because his crucifixion was unique. You see, the emphasis is on him. So, so let's, let's, let's behold his person. Who is him? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord of glory. It's the creator of the universe. It's son of God and son of man. And, and let's remember when he was there on the cross, he was there as the God-man, perfect God and yet perfect man, two natures and one body forever. And the Bible tells us, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. And it's important that we link the, the, the incarnation with the crucifixion. And that, that's what makes this crucifixion unique, because the person there was God the Son. I want you to behold his purity. Did you know that, as I've said, it's a place reserved for the worst of criminals, everybody was crucified, was charged with some thing. And they put a sign above the cross to outline what it was, murder or theft or treason or whatever. Now, they had a sign over the cross of Christ. We have read about it in our reading. Look at Luke chapter 23 and verse um, 38. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, three languages. That's for all the passers-by. What did it say? This is the king of the Jews. That's all it said. You see, let's remember that the Bible says of him, he did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. The Bible calls him the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He, he was the lamb without blemish. The, the sinlessness of Christ. In fact, he said, the prince of this world come and of nothing in me. God the Father said three times from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he wouldn't have been pleased with Christ if he'd sinned in thought and word and deed. I want you to behold his passion. Do you know that in the Gospel of Luke, we're told in chapter 9, verse 51, that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. At the age of 33, why go to Jerusalem? And the answer is, he was going to the cross. I want you just to think of this in contrast. In Genesis 22, verse 4, we read of Abraham and Isaac... The Bible tells us Abraham saw the place afar off on the third day. And during that time, Isaac, of course, once they discovered the place, asked his father, we've got the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? In verse 8 of Genesis 22, Abraham told his son, God will provide himself a lamb. And then we're told in the verse 9, and when they were come to the place, notice the emphasis on the place and the relationship of the place to the lamb. 
The place that God told them of, what did he do? He built an altar, he laid the wood in order, and then he picked up Isaac, and he bound his son on that altar. And that place is Mount Moriah. And I want to tell you, it's interesting, that Mount Moriah is in the same mountain range as Mount Calvary. And it's widely believed in the very place Abraham was going to offer Isaac on the altar, in that very same place, God the Father was going to offer up his only begotten son. There was a special father-son relationship. It was the same place. And in fact, the Lord Jesus said of Abraham in John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was sought and was glad. Not only the day of his birth, not only the day of his life, but especially the day of his place, his birth, his death. I believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit created that place. That place was not only historical, but that place was horrible because that was the place of death and bloodshedding. You think of his person tonight. The God man there in the tree. You think of his purity. Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. You think of his passion. He had set his heart and mind in getting to that place. Remember, he was born to die. It's not by chance, it's not by accident. It's not by mistake. He he deliberately, willingly, and voluntarily gave himself up unto death. The death of a substitute, the death of a surety, a, a sacrificial death, to die in the place of others, bearing the guilt and shame and punishment of our sin, bearing the wrath of God on his own body in the tree. Let me tell you very quickly this was a place where he was betrayed by his friends. Psalm 49, verse 1. My known familiar friend have lifted up his hand against me. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. That, that was the price for which he was betrayed. He was betrayed by false witnesses. Psalm 27, verse 12. This was a place where he was beaten by his foes. Remember his scourging? How they left his flesh running red with blood. A place where he was spat on. I was just reading the other day of a soldier who was serving here. I think it was in 74. And he said this wee lady came up to him and she said to him, Hello, wee fella. And he was about to open his mouth to speak to her and she spat on him. I was thinking, somebody's spitting right in your face. How do you react? They slapped him, remember? They, they, they scorned him. By mockery. That is all prophesied. Psalm 22, verses 68. They, they stripped off his clothes, plucked off the hair from his face, planted a crown of thorns and put it in his lovely brow. They pierced his hands and his feet. Psalm 22 and 16. Or on the tree, they offered him gall and vinegar. Psalm 69, verse 21. And that was a form of a drug to dull the pain, and he would have none of it. They cast lots for his clothes as he hung there. Psalm 22 and verse 18. He was crucified between two thieves. Isaiah 53 and 12. Not one of his bones was broken. Psalm 34 verse 20. His side was to be pierced. Zechariah 12 and 10. And that's what that involved. Behold his passion. His physical sufferings. I wouldn't belittle his physical sufferings. I wouldn't want to undermine them. 
But behind the physical sufferings is his unseen mental sufferings. His spiritual sufferings. Remember, the Bible tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to make a soul an offering for sin. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. When the blanket darkness came down for three hours, God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us. A sin offering, a sacrifice, a substitute. The Bible tells us, in that time he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Can I tell you tonight, Calvary was a brutal, cruel place of public execution. A most depraved place. A humiliating, horrible place. Where were his disciples? They forsook him and fled. Where was Peter who boasted, I'll never deny you? Where was the thousands that he'd helped and healed and fed? Where was his family? We know his mother was there. Mary Magdalene was there. The other women were there. Where was his brothers and sisters? Did he not say in Isaiah 63 and verse 3 that he'd trodden the winepress alone? I'm telling you it was a horrible place. And, I, and I, I can't describe it tonight. I wish I had power of order to, to, to paint the picture in words. But I've only scratched the surface. Let me tell you one other thing as we close. Calvary's a hollow place. You see, when I, when I mentioned Calvary, as I lay in my bed the other night and thought about the word Calvary, I felt so inadequate. I was thinking, Lord, how could I describe that? Lord, Calvary's so familiar to us. We're so used to it, we're almost numbed in our senses. But we, we take it for granted. Why is Calvary sacred? Why is it a hallowed place? Why is it a place where we want to bow our head and give thanks to God? A, a place where we, we maybe even cry tears. A place where we begin to think about the physical, mental, and spiritual sufferings of Christ. A place where we're overwhelmed. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me just suggest in closing why it's a hallowed place. It's a hallowed place because it displays the pollution of sin. Remember the text that says he bare our sins in his own body in the tree. You think of the worst and vilest of sins. The Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all got a sin problem. What keeps you out of heaven? What keeps you away from God and a relationship with Jesus Christ? The answer is sin. We're all sinners by nature and sinners by practice. What is sin? Who defines it? Well, God does. Sin is anyone to conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's not human governments that define sin. Or social services. Or even a judge in the bench. No, no, it's God. Sin is the transgression of the law. It's any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And if you want to know you're a sinner tonight, measure yourself not by yourself, not by others, but by the Ten Commandments. And once you begin to analyze the Ten Commandments, you'll discover tonight that you're a sinner. See, we want to compare ourselves to others, don't we? We think about that we're better than others. The doctrine of human goodness is alive and well. I'm not a sinner. I've not done this or that like he or she has done. 
But I want to tell you tonight there's such a thing as universal sin and universal guilt and universal death. Because there's sin in the world, there's death. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 verse 12, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Death by sin. For all have sinned. How many tonight say no God? How many tonight ignore and avoid God? Simply because they think, well, I'm not as bad as the other person. Or I'm not as bad as the Bible says. And they measure themselves by their background and their environment and this institution and that. And their parroting. But they ignore the fact. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's also a display of the purchase of salvation. Salvation is not found in the church. Your close association with the free church not found in sacraments or religious works and duties only in Christ he purchased eternal salvation the work was complete in fact he said one of his cries was finished he he procured he he purchased salvation he he paid the debt that our sin owed to the broken law in full he satisfied divine justice and the proof was that God had raised him from the dead and that's why the Bible says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a lovely verse in the book of Colossians that I was also meditating on. And it says this in Colossians chapter 2 and in the, uh, or chapter 1 and the verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, he's the source of peace. Peace with God. The peace of God can be your experience tonight. And it's all bound up in Jesus Christ. Are you redeemed tonight? Have you been to the cross? Have you realized he purchased salvation? It also displays the pardon of sinners. See, there's a little chorus says, there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Calvary's cross. Think of the door of the cross. A door that's open that, that all may go in. And if you come as a sinner to Jesus and cry out, God be merciful to me, the sinner, you can be saved tonight. You, you can have a full and free and forever pardon. Can I say to you tonight, don't spit in the face of Christ. Don't walk past the cross. Don't tonight climb over it. Come to the cross, kneel at the feet of Christ and realize that by his death on Calvary, his death displays the pardon of sinners. Can I tell you something else in closing? Here's another reason why it's hollowed. It displays the picture of society. How many crosses were in that hill? There was three. A malefactor in the right hand and on the left hand. That's what the Bible tells us there in verse 33. Who was in the middle? The Lord Jesus. Why was he in the middle? Was that by chance? Was that like the soldiers going any, meeny, miny, mo? The answer is no. This was deliberate. Do you know that when they crucified three people together or five, that the one in the middle was declared to be the worst of all? The one who was the most despised and hated. 
and to be disdained and rejected. And that's the way God had ordered it. One of those malefactors repented and got right with God. Today shall thou be with me in paradise. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the other died as he left. One had a deathbed repentance that none may despair. But only one that nobody can presume. You don't know the hour of your death. You don't know when or the way that you leave this scene of time. You know what the Bible tells us? Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Could I ask tonight, what is your attitude to, to Christ? Do you see the one in the middle cross as the one who's treated as the worst of criminals? And yet, when we think of his person, his purity, his passion, his power, he, he deserves that you fall at his feet and cry, my Lord and my God. Is that your attitude? Is your attitude like one of these malefactors? Lord, remember me. Lord, save me. Or is your attitude like the other guy, casting the same in his teeth? You know, the Bible tells us today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Do you hear the voice of Christ calling you? Come to me. Think of him tonight in the tree. He's calling out now your name. He's asking you to stop. He's asking you to behold his sufferings. He's asking you that you might repent and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. Don't walk past. Don't spit in his face. Don't climb over the cross. Because these three crosses are a picture of society. And if the middle one has died for you, then what's your attitude to him? May the Lord give you help tonight as you think about the place called Calvary.